Hello and welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you? Well, I'm hanging tough in Chicago. Thank you. Well, hopefully you're on vacation like the Supreme Court justices are on vacation. They just I'm never up. on vacation, Adam. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, the work follows you like a hound dog. There's never a day when you're free of it. As I said about academics many, many years ago, there's no particular time that you have to work and there's no particular time that you can't work. So we are constantly at the margin between work and leisure. You know, Justice Brandeis once said, I can do 12 months of work in 11 months, but not in 12 I think there's something to be said for that, but I gather you don't follow that plan. No, I basically, I try to pace myself. Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, the rule that I try to have is unless external necessities force it, I try to go to sleep with the expectation that the next morning I'm up about as fresh as I was the day before. And so essentially I try to pattern the situation so as to build work and leisure into every day. And then, of course, when you go on family excursions and things like that, that does give the notable release. I'm too old to change it now, Adam, but I don't think I've taken a month off from work uh, since I started teaching in 1968. Well, I don't know if the justices are all on vacation, but they've certainly finished their work for the last year. We're recording this in mid to late July, uh, just a couple of weeks after the court wrapped up its terms work with a usual flurry of controversial opinions. We'll talk about Portland in a little bit, but first I want to focus on at least a couple of the cases that the court decided. And one of them that's piqued both of our interests and a lot of interest in the political world is the case surrounding President Trump's rollback of DACA, the Obama administration's program of deferred action for childhood arrivals, a controversial immigration policy case. The Supreme Court issued its decision in Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. The court pushed back against the Trump administration. They didn't say you can't roll back DACA. They did say you need to do it in a different and more thorough way. Richard, what do you think about the court's decision pushing back against the Trump administration? Um, I basically thought it was an incorrect decision. Uh, to me, it was a play without taking into account, uh, uh, shall we say, the king's ghost in Hamlet. Uh, what happened in this particular case is the Obama administration, by common consent, had decided to do through executive order something which it did not have the power to do without explicit authorization from, Cong from Congress. And that was essentially to introduce a very complicated, I think quite well thought out program whereby uh, early hood arrival children who had basically been in the United States uh, uh, since they could remember would be allowed to stay here uh, indefinitely uh, subject to certain kinds of renewals and conditions. The program was very popular amongst large numbers of individuals and indeed at NYU I taught a fair number of students who were in fact DACA children uh, who had come on there. The Trump administration is a very strong anti-immigration Animus, and what it decided to do was to roll back the program. Uh, what it did essentially is to do it on the simplest grounds that the program was illegal when it was put into place, and so therefore its removal was the correction of an illegal action. And at the root of its decision, they said that's all you have to show in order to uh, avoid the standard rules with respect to notice and comment hearing or other kinds of things associated with the Administrative Procedure Act. I think basically that position is correct because otherwise, what you do is you get yourself into a very strong one-way ratchet, which is one administration decides to do something illegal, it then gets into place, the next administration wants to remove it, and it then has to go through a very complicated set of formalities where there's going to be relatively high scrutiny. Uh, to add insult to injury, I think that the uh, 
basically Chief Justice Roberts made two other kinds of mistakes. One was there's a question about at what time do you evaluate the reasons that are put forward by the government. Uh, originally, this thing was done nine months before it was finally reaffirmed when uh, the person in charge of the program changed. And so the question is, do you take the earlier date or you take the later date by which to measure its legality? Uh, Justice Roberts said, oh, it's at the time that the thing is first put into place that you look at the reasons, uh, not at the time when it's reissued. I don't think there's any reason whatsoever when the other stuff is on the record and the earlier order is reissued that you do not take into account anything else that is said at the second time when you're trying to do an evaluation of the program. There's no reliance interest on the earlier situation. You get a better and a fuller record. If it turns out that it meets standards, then it's just fine. And then the second problem, of course, is what do we mean when we start to talk about arbitrary and capricious. This is a phrase which has metaphysical significance in administrative law. Um, in its ordinary meaning, capricious says you've done it on a whim. Arbitrary means you put a line somewhere and you can't possibly defend it one way or another. I don't think either of those terms are appropriate with respect to the removal of an action which is illegal. It's not arbitrary to get rid of illegal action, and it's certainly not capricious. So the dissent, which began with the illegality point, that is from Justice Thomas, I think was much stronger on that. Uh, but what happened is uh, Justice Roberts says, well, there are many ways that you can unwind the program. What you have to do is to detail to us which are the ones you want to do and why. And so what we're going to do is to slow this thing down for yet another period. I don't think that this is the way administrative law ought to work. Um, it turns out, as I will end as began, is that this means that people like uh, or Barack Obama or Donald Trump know that if they start to put an illegal program in place, uh, that they can basically keep it going as long as possible because the next administration is going to be faced with exactly this kind of challenge. So um, this has nothing to do with the merits of DACA, which I tend to applaud. I think it's a good program, uh, but it does have to do with administrative law. And I think that they look to the wrong set of precedents. What they said is applicable to uh, legal orders. I don't think it's applicable to illegal ones. That last one of those last points you made about the head start that this gives to administrations that that willfully break the law. It reminds me of the old saying that a lie can get around the world faster than uh, the truth can get its sneakers on. And That's I, the law of defamation. Yes, I think there's something to that. Ultimately, I, as I suggested when I raised the case, I'm, I'm much more hospitable towards the court's opinion, and I'll tell you why. But first, let me just tell you what I agree on. Uh, I I agree with you that DACA is a laudable policy, and and I hope Congress legislates it somehow. I was also a, a critic and a skeptic of the Obama administration's implementation of, of DACA and DAPA in the first instance. It seemed to me as a flagrant, it seemed to me a flagrant violation of basic principles of administrative law that when an administration moves beyond just case by case enforcement discretion and starts announcing broad question, broad matters of policy, we in administrative law we call it legislative rules, we have a process for that. The process is things like the notice and comment process where the agency has to go through a public and transparent policy before, or process before it finalizes a policy that has significant impacts on people's rights, interests, duties, obligations, and, and so on. And so I agree that the, the original DACA and DAPA policies they, they sure seem to me to be unlawful, and I was saying it from the start, that it was a violation of, of the APA and also the president's duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, both the substantive laws and procedural laws like the APA. 
And so I agree with all of that. And I think that as I, I wrote a piece for the Bulwark uh, recently on, on this dispute about the DACA decision, I said there's a, there's a real frustrating irony of the way that the Obama administration was able to get this, these programs rolling. Um, they, they were to, in many ways, not all of them, but in many ways, DACA and DAPA were blocked by the lower courts. It got to the Supreme Court, which only had eight justices that year because of Justice Scalia's death and Senator McC- the Republican senator's um, delay of, of confirming another justice for that seat. So the Supreme Court deadlocked four to four on the case and affirmed the lower court's decisions on DAPA and on the DACA expansion. Um, we now have President Trump trying to roll back the pro- these, these policies altogether, and he finds himself stymied by the very sorts of arguments that were raised against the Obama administration in the first place, right? As Chief Justice Roberts says in his opinion for the court, DACA itself was more than just a, a policy of enforcement discretion. It was a, or it was more than just a matter of enforcement discretion. It was a real substantive policy, and so is its rollback. By the way, I think that when the court said those things about DACA, it is itself a strong indication that it saw huge. Chief Justice Roberts, at least, saw huge legal flaws with DACA itself. But of course, the case at hand is not the DACA creation; it's the DACA rollback. And so now the Trump administration finds itself facing the exact sorts of arguments in rolling back DACA that the Obama administration saw in its first efforts to create DACA in the first place. That when you have a policy judgment that goes beyond mere case-by-case discretion and the agencies are making real policy that affects rights and interests, duties and obligations, that there's a process for that, and it's the APA. And part of the APA's process is judicial review under the arbitrary and capricious standard, which, as you've indicated, has taken on great weight in administrative law. People call it hard-look review. The courts require the agencies to look at all of the major issues that are at stake in the rulemaking, not just the ones that the agency particularly wants to talk about, but the other ones that are brought to its attention or that are obvious and, and, and require attention. And so in this case, the court said it was clear that even setting aside the question of legality or illegality, the court, sorry, the agency needed to grapple with things like the reliance interests of the people who have built their lives around the DACA program. Even if those reliance interests were built upon uh, an improper and illegitimate policy to begin with, those interests are real and the the agency needs to at least grapple with them before reaching its conclusion. The court wasn't dictating an outcome on the policy, but it was dictating a process. And I think this is a good decision because I think it's actually aimed not just at the rollback of improper policies, but it's also aimed at their formation in the first place. I think this opinion is the sort of opinion that's going to get cited the next time a president tries to pull a stunt along the lines of the DACA-DAPA fiasco, where President Obama tried to unilaterally make law with a pen and phone without going through the process. And one of the reasons why I'm not convinced by this worry of the one-way ratchet that you described is that I think that if the if, if a president, whether it's President Trump or, or other presidents, try if, if they see this case as creating a head start for presidents to engage in willful illegality, that it takes a longer time for later presidents to clean up, what they're going to find is their initial action is going to be stymied in the lower courts who are going to enjoin the enforcement of that initial policy. I think that we'll see lots of cases like that if presidents test the limits of this decision. And I think that the courts, when they push back against those presidential actions, are going to be citing cases like 
uh, Department of Homeland Security against Regents of California. I'll say I saw President Trump in his interview with Chris Wallace um, a few days before we're taping this. He said that he, he, he brought up the DACA case and he said the Supreme Court had given him a great new tool for taking unilateral action on health care and on immigration and on other policies. It was such a ridiculous thing to say, one, because I think it's a misreading of the case, but two, it's going to be self-defeating. He's just inviting federal district courts who are probably already primed to rule against him to rule against him even more swiftly and even more legitimately because they understand what he's trying to do. The president has this ineffable ability to stick his foot in the mouth, say the dumbest possible thing, and to make the most extravagant case claims that it's possible. It's really painful to watch him talk uh, because what he does is he basically has legitimate grievances against this case, and he doesn't raise them. So let me answer a couple of your points, because I, I still disagree. First of all, you were quite right to say that one of the reasons why DAPA, DACA was a suspect policy is that the sole power that the president has with respect to these issues at its best would be to make a categorical judgment that certain kinds of cases are not worthy of prosecution. So it's a non-prosecution provision. Uh, one of the things that happened with respect to the DAPA position with respect to the parents is that it became very clear that, hey, you're trying to do more than that. What you're trying to do in this particular case is to give people substantive rights against state governments, motor vehicle licenses, and things of that particular sort. And that is, A, not a non-prosecution function, and also it's really an offense against separation of powers because it would have to be Congress to do this, and federalism because, to some extent, there are state interests that are going to be implicated as well. So it turns out that this illegality has uh, collateral dimensions. That makes it worse rather than making it better under these circumstances. Then with respect to the uh, ration of the arbitrary and capricious review, uh, in this particular case, uh, hard look is the antithesis of that. Uh, it would be a body of administrative law that I would condemn but could understand, which made that a universal standard. But one of the reasons why this is so troublesome is there are all sorts of cases when you do arbitrary and capricious review uh, where a court will start to say, well, if there's any kind of a rational basis for what's going on in this particular case, for which illegality would surely be one, uh, then at that particular point, um, our inquiry is stopped. So administrative law at this particular point has two standards, hard look, which is strict scrutiny and rational basis under arbitrary and capricious. And the great danger is if you don't like a president, uh, when he's defending his actions, you give it strict scrutiny. And when somebody's attacking them, you give it rational basis. So uh, I'm really very concerned about that. And last, you did mention the reliance interest. Now, as far as I can see, uh, the issue of reliance in public law is the same as the issue of reliance in private law. And essentially, the reliance has to be justified. Uh, so if somebody says, I'm going to basically tell you that you know, I don't really expect to enforce this thing against you, but I don't want you to rely upon it. And then they rely upon it. And you say, well, you know, I told you, you had to do it at your own risk. They can't turn around and say it was justifiable. Uh, what happened is they can make a prudent guess, but it doesn't bind the other party. And everybody under DACA, I think, is perfectly entitled to make judgments that, well, it's worth staying here, completing our education. But if in fact it is known, and it was known at the time that it was issued that there was serious legality, uh, with illegality problems with DACA, then it seems to me that you can't make the other element out of reliance, mainly that it's justified in the light of the facts and circumstances of the case. Uh, and then the last point is, I think you're quite right. Uh, that we need to make sure that illegal actions by presidents are going to be promptly challenged. That would be the case no matter which way this came out. People promptly challenged both DACA and DAPA under
under this for exactly those grounds. And even if this case had come out the other way uh, so that the program was terminated, it certainly is going to not dull the incentives of large numbers of people to attack these things so as to get them out of the way before they can become entrenched. Because as you said, people are always worried about illegitimate reliance, that is, reliance that is not justified by what is said by the other side, but seems to be reasonable in the light of the circumstances is a rational calculation. So uh, I think, in effect, in this one, Justice Thomas wrote a particularly strong opinion. Uh, and Adam, uh, you haven't persuaded me. What you have persuaded me again and again and again is that this president's single worst enemy is the president. Now, I, I'm with you on the merits of, of I think everything you raised, right, that, that the reliance here was unjustified and unjustifiable, and, and that to the extent that there was reliance, it doesn't justify maintaining an unlawful policy. I agree with all those things. And I don't think the court's opinion disagrees with it. All the court was saying is that the agency needed to grapple with those issues through the proper Administrative Procedure Act process under the applicable standards before reaching those conclusions, right? That it's, it's not a question on the merits. It's just a question on the process for reaching those merits. I just don't think there's anything to grapple with. I, I think this is a very easy case. Um, and in fact, suppose what they said is we've thought about this long and hard, and we believe that the principle of illegality is important and the ratchet effect counts. Um, would that satisfy Chief Justice Roberts? We don't know the answer. So what happens is the moment you start getting into these nuances, uh, it turns out that grappling can put up an insuperable substantive standard. And in fact, the general rule of administrative law should be easy cases, should be quickly disposed of one way or the other. And so I looked at what he said, and I tried to figure out how I would write a report that would satisfy uh, his rather nebulous concerns. I did not think that I could find a particularly effective way to do it that wasn't already approached. Or to put it another way, this thing has been vetted and argued about so many times that the marginal value, I think, of new information is relatively modest. So, again, I mean, I think it's perfectly appropriate to sort of make these arguments, and obviously the administration is going to be bound, uh, but I think that the dissent at this point had the better. Well, this comes back to a point you raised earlier about the process, the, the initial statement from the Department of Homeland Security, the follow-up memo from, from Acting Secretary, was it Duke? Um, yes, Duke. That's what it was. I, I, For what it's worth, I think that what Duke said in the follow-on statement probably satisfies the requirements of administrative law, and they might even convince Roberts. There are low standards, and obviously there's always the risk. You know it well from not just the APA, but also the National Environment Policy Act. That we do need to always be on the guard, on guard against um, uh, analysis, you know, paralysis by analysis, right? Constantly raising new issues and just trying to slow down the process. I don't think the court requires much more than what was said in the Duke statement, but I think the court got it right in saying the Duke statement wasn't properly before the court. Again, there's a process for judicial review of agency action. The agency had taken its action, and under long-standing standards of cases like Chenery and so on, the uh, Chenery is an old Supreme Court case. The, no. I mean, you know that. I don't, I don't know that. You're talking, the about Cheney, you're, you're talking about Cheney. You're not Chenery. Chenery. No, Chenery, the, the, the original case. You're talking about the SEC case? Yeah, that's right, where the court says that we're going to review yeah, agency only action strength, yes. only on the strength of the arguments that are advanced by the agency itself in its decision. What I'm getting at, I know you get that. I just want to make sure that some of the okay. folks who are tuning in get that. I, I think that the court was right to review the case in light of the agency's initial decision. 
to the extent that they tried to supplement the record at the lower court's invitation, um, to the extent the agency tried to, those subsequent memos just really weren't rightly before the case. I think the Trump administration can very swiftly remedy the problems of the first process based on what was already there in the Duke memo and do this all over again. And then people can sue them and there can be litigation about it. But I, I think that the point in all of this is that there are processes for these things. And one of the things that Roberts is trying to achieve, I think, in this case, in last year's case over the census and elsewhere, is that his guiding principle on administrative law, and he's been one of the most significant judges on the court, on the Supreme Court, on, on reforming the administrative state, he's very worried about unsteadiness in administration and wild flip-flops from one administration to the next. You see this not just in the census and, and DACA cases. You saw a flavor of it in the King v. Burwell case where he's dealing with Chevron deference. And I'm, I'm, writing a, I'm writing a longer piece on Roberts and administrative law, and I've gone back and looked at the times where he would joke in oral arguments. He would, sometimes more than joke, he'd prod the litigants on behalf of the government. He'd say, he'd say to the government lawyers, just admit it. What changed here was not some new facts or anything. It's a change in administrations, and that's what's driving this. Roberts isn't saying that you can't change your mind from one administration to the next, but it seems like he's trying to um, dampen some of the wild and sudden vicis- uh, um, variations from one administration to the next. And I think the DACA, that's one of the reasons why I agree with that principle, and it's one of the reasons why I like the DACA case. I think that if it applies even-handedly going forward to both the creation and reform or repeal of of substantive policies, that it could have a, a, a good effect in promoting the steady administration of the laws from one administration to the next. Well, now, I, uh, two things. One is there's no change in administration in this case. And secondly, even if you apply the early Chenery position, it seems to me it's not a huge stretch to say that uh, when the second secretary comes forward and no, says... No, no, I, I, I'm talking I about mean, a that, change that, from the I, Obama years to the Trump no, years. No, I'm just saying, but in this particular case, I treat the, the second order as though it's a new issue rather than a reissue of an older order. And it seems to me that that meets that requirement. The issue in Chevron, I agree with you 100 uh, percent, this was a change between the Carter administration and the Reagan administration on the way in which you started to do environmental law on the question of, you know, when is it that you start to have a major hearing because of certain kinds of changes in the configuration of a plan? And uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was on the Circuit Court of Appeals, wrote a decision which essentially invalidated some of these kinds of changes that wanted to be made. And I thought on rather frivolous grounds. And the Supreme Court uh, said, look, um, uh, this administration gets it. So Chevron was the case that introduced the flip-flop. And the way in which it should have been decided, I think, is Justice Stevens should have said, look, the statute's got multiple provisions. The direct provision is as clear as anything is going to be on this. Um, and so we follow it and we don't let collateral sources from other parts of the statute influence it. And so uh, the correct reading, I think, is you do de novo review. And that means that the administrations can change it. All they can do is make arguments as to what the best reading is. I'm well aware of the fact that the question of what counts as a source or a point source under Chevron is an issue of immense kind of complexity. Um, and that 
There are two ways to read it, but there are huge numbers of administrative law cases that seem to me to be quite clear as to what they mean, including something like our. And so getting rid of deference is, I think, the way in which you handle that. But this particular case, there's no flip-flop. It's a continuous policy one way or another. And what Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, sort of said is, look, I mean, the second secretary affirmed what the first secretary had done. We will treat this as a nunk-pro-tuk decision. We'll treat it as though this is something which is done on the second time round. And indeed, that's what actually happened in Chenery. It came back. They did another hearing, and then they upheld it on what I thought were quite dreadful grounds, substantively and so forth. So I don't disagree with you about the continuity point, uh, but I don't think that that particular principle is invoked in a case where you have the same administration reaffirming an earlier position. Well, what I'm talking uh, my earlier point was about two different kinds of steadiness. One is the steadiness from one administration to the next when inevitably there will be changes of policy, such as changing from DACA to repealing DACA. Um, and the question is, what's the process for both creating that initial policy and then repealing that policy that's more than just uh, the pen and the phone? On on the the point when I mentioned the the Duke memo, that was a, uh, right. That all did happen within one administration. But again, it's just the steadiness of creating a process for both the formulation of policy and then judicial review of that policy, which isn't just sort of the chaos of of an administration chucking more justifications onto the pile, but rather the court establishing, as the court did in the Chenery case, here's what we review. We're going to review just that on its face, and then we'll move on from there. Again, I think that the Duke memo, its I think it as an authoritative statement of government policy was never litigated. The court set it aside. The, the administration could stick with the justifications in the Duke memo and explain why in the aftermath of the DHS, the, the Supreme Court's decision in the case, it's, per, it's persisting with that policy. And I think if they give a minimal explanation, that should be enough. Richard, before we move on to Portland, would you like to say a few words about the the House and, and New York subpoena cases? Yeah, I think, you know, these are extremely important cases. And again, it's quite clear that uh, you, Mr. Trump's personality is front and center in both of them uh, because of his uh, uh, very determined decision that he does not wish to release his tax records. Uh, he's not required to do so by law, but it is consistently done by custom. I might add that, you know, other people want to keep things quiet as well. Barack Obama never released his uh, undergraduate college transcripts and so forth. And, and nobody seemed to say that that was going to be a fatal situation. And so indeed, one of the things I think that should be extremely important is that for the most part, when people wish to keep information quiet, that there's not a positive command under the law to impose, that the appropriate response is to attack them politically, um, not to attack them judicially as a kind of a general matter. And in this particular case, what the House did is it said that we wanted to get this kind of information in order to be able to formulate policy uh, with respect to the way in which we ought to treat a president's behavior in connection with various kinds of campaign practices and acts uh, when they're in the audience, in, in office. And, and my view about this is this is just a plain old witch hunt. Uh, they know what they want. They want to get Trump in any way possible. They want to embarrass him. If they wanted to essentially figure out what to do with respect to law, 
Uh, there are all sorts of other sources of information that they can have, many people to comment on what Trump did, and also lots of publicly available information about the way in which previous presidents and previous presidential nominees had handled these particular kinds of questions. So I agree pretty strongly with uh, Naomi Rao on this one, uh, that there was a fishing expedition rather than a legitimate legislative purpose. Now, Justice Roberts, when he came through, was not unsympathetic to that position, and he certainly did not take the position of the dissent um, in the uh, District of Columbia. Uh, but what he did is essentially he kind of gave, uh, use this as the last source of evidence available, and then do a factual inquiry as to whether or not this is or is not something that can be gotten out in light of what the Congress wishes to find, what the House wishes to find, and what available evidence it had. Uh, it's a facts and circumstances case. It introduces more uncertainty and more delay. So people on the left were rightly indignant about the fact that it meant that Trump could surely keep this thing over until the next election was done, at which point it would become moot. Uh, that's not my concern. My concern is actually the opposite one. I think, in effect, that uh, uh, the House has to have a really compelling showing on this stuff. And the moment you go after a sitting president, I think separation of powers is much more important uh, than the information you're getting. Now, when you start looking at this prosecutions in the state, it's exactly the same thing. Lord knows how many state prosecutors there are. But I can say that in certain progressive strongholds, uh, there are going to be prosecutors who have deep animus with respect to the president and want to do anything that they can to embarrass him. And so what they do is they file suits. Um, I think that one of the great mistakes in uh, constitutional jurisprudence was the case of Clinton against Jones, and I said so at the time. I do not think that you should be allowed to take a deposition or bring a case against a sitting president on any matter, whether or not it pertains to his office. After he is out of office, if it turns out that the actions that were done were related to his conduct in office and are subject to an absolute executive privilege, uh, then he's safe. If it turns out that they're related to events that are not subject to an absolute privilege, you preserve evidence, waive the statute of information uh, of limitations in the interim, and then you can go after him full bore after he's out of office. And that's what I think ought to be done in this case. It's just a huge distraction from office, and what it does is it means that the single most hostile prosecutors are the ones who can start to dictate this. There's nothing whatsoever that prevents independent prosecutors in different states or different jurisdictions from doing these things. And so, again, I think the correct rule is a per se ban uh, on these things during the pendency of office, not a kind of remand and try to figure out what it is. Justice Roberts sometimes is more of a balancer than I am. Uh, he is essentially kind of in the mold of Sandra Day O'Connor, who finds something to say on every side of every question. Uh, but on the questions of, about immunities, the, the point I will make more generally is that either they're absolute or they're worthless, at least in cases of deliberate political action. And any effort to try and have a standard which is administrable, uh, that this thing essentially, um, the immunity only protects you against lawsuits unless you gave in some grave form of misconduct or malicious behavior. Every time you make a conscious effort or a conscious action, somebody can say that the whole thing has been malicious, and so the privilege crumbles. Barbie Matea, which was the absolute privilege, was the correct rule, and after a lot of hemming and hawing, I think that's where we're back to with respect to most official actions. Uh, there are other ways to get to a president. Litigation, I think, during office is not one of them. Uh, so I think, in effect, the per se rule is appropriate in both of these cases. After the court decided the the subpoena cases, it occurred to me that we've had 
just this run of really striking examples of the central importance for better or I think for worse uh, of prosecutors in our political system. Um, you had the the New York subpoenas case. You had um, the the D.C. Circuit's decision um, about um, the the Justice Department's pullback of its prosecution of Flynn and uh, District Judge Sullivan uh, effectively taking on the role of prosecutor and and deputizing a retired district court judge to play a role of of, of Ersatz prosecutor, um, all in this pursuit of of, of Michael Flynn. And we've seen the House House Judiciary Committee had hearings recently featuring Michael Mukasey and somebody from the a dissenting voice from the Justice Department on politicization of prosecution. And time and time again, we've seen this. It's been a story of our politics for so long. Um, I have a long piece up at City Journal, so I won't I won't belabor the point here. If people care to know what I think about this, they can read it there. But as I said in the piece, we have a system where ambition counteracts ambition. But it's not clear how the system works when the most ambitious ones are, are the prosecutors. And, and I'm very, very worried about where this is all headed. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what I think of the Supreme Court's decision yet in the New York subpoena case. If there really are teeth in the limits on the subpoenas that the court says there are and the president can assert these defenses in terms of burden as factual questions, if that really is a, if that really is a protection for the president, then I'm less worried about it. But the case as a whole is a reminder of, of the, the immense political power wielded by prosecutors. And now we're going into a presidential election where, you know, last time around it was President Trump saying, lock her up. This time it's not necessarily Biden, but Warren and, and Harris, who might be the next vice president or the next attorney general, were very vocal in wanting to see President Trump investigated, prosecuted, and so on. And it's really, I think, that one of the most disturbing aspects of our political world today should we talk it's, about Portland? <laughs> no, I, want to, I just want to say yeah. this relates to this. I mean, it's also the same notion with respect to academics is that now if it turns out you dissent from certain kinds of issues, instead of saying you're wrong on the merits before us, we say the question is, do you have to recant? Can you be removed from your position as an administrator? Can you be prevented from teaching undergraduates or whatever? I think, in effect, the escalation is very dangerous. And uh, the problem of prosecutorial discretion is one of the great unsolved problems of America. American jurisprudence. And the reason is stunningly simple. The power to prosecute is the power to destroy, but the limits on prosecution that people are able to devise are very bad. And so I like the absolute immunity, at least in some select cases, because it limits the scope of the discretion and still leaves it after the appropriate time for these things to be reasserted. But I'm happy to go on to Portland now, which I think has become <laughs> a saga of its own. I don't know if happy describes the situation in Portland. No, it's not. Um, but we're, we are taping this, just so folks know, I've said it vaguely, but the specific date is July 22nd, and things are still both coming together very quickly, and, and news is developing out of Portland. But we've seen this fight between the protests, the protesters, the rioters, and then on the other hand, law enforcement. And recently there have been questions raised about the federal role in law enforcement, questions about federal agents um, not clearly displaying who they're working for, what their agency is, who they are. Um, coming and questioning or detaining people. I think, Nancy, if I heard it correctly, Speaker Pelosi referred to these federal um, officers as stormtroopers, Trump stormtroopers, which is, I think, a disgusting thing to say about federal law enforcement. 
But at the same time, I am a little wary of law enforcement of any kind walking in without clear demarcation of, of who they are and who they're working for and questioning and detaining people. So, Richard, what's your sense of the situation? Uh, it's, as usual, a needless tragedy provoked by all sides. I, I agree with you that the effort on the part of the president to insert federal troops into these areas um, lacked a certain degree of finesse. And uh, what you have to do under these cases is whether you negotiate or whether you order, you must speak to the mayors first and to the governors before you do it. This is not the question, I think, that they have a veto power over this, which is the sort of issues that they're actually likely to assert and almost did cert in connection with the letter that multiple mayors had written uh, to the president, including the mayor of Portland and the mayor of Chicago uh, and several others, saying, you just don't belong here. We can handle it. But uh, what he do is certainly has justifications to go in to protect the federal courthouse if it turns out they don't do it. Do I think, in effect, that they have the power of arrest? I think, of course, they have the power of arrest. Um, if it turns out that you have a protester who's protesting a state issue and a federal issue at the same time or attacking two buildings, um, I think at this particular point, the supremacy clause says that the federal forces get to control and the state forces have to give way. And indeed, if you remember in uh, earlier times, like when Little Rock had to be integrated, um, they nationalized the state guard uh, under Eisenhower in order to keep war. So uh, there is no question, I think, as to which way the priority exercised legally, but I think there's a disaster. The other problem, of course, that one has here is that the governors and the mayors are all of two minds with a large number of these issues. Um, nobody doubts that peaceful protesters against whatever it is are justified, whether you agree with or disagree with their particular claims on connection with George Floyd does not matter. They want to go out and march and say unfair to George. They are perfectly within their rights to do it. But when there's wholesale looting that's going on at the same time, uh, you cannot write a letter which says there are many peaceful protesters and not write in the same letters. But on the other hand, there's wholesale violence. Um, I have a rare privilege of having uh, working in Chicago and New York and living, therefore, in both cities. And in both cities, they're boarded up stores along Broadway and they're boarded up stores along Michigan Avenue and Chicago Avenue, all of which were done in response to the looting. And I do not think that the mayors and the governors of these states have been determined enough to deal with this. This then invites Trump to give some very semi-hysterical ads on this particular problem, which only complicates the kind of issue. And so, again, it's the sort of endless frustration you have with this particular president. Even when he's right, he manages to protect himself in such a way and to conduct himself in such a way that he becomes the center of attention. And in fact, I think it's almost pathological. I think you could say about this president, he'd rather be on the hot seat uh, than to do something smoothly and well. He just likes the excitement. Um, there are people who are like that, and, and he turns out to be one of them. I think it's a very dangerous behavior in the part of a president, and there's much to regret in what he has done. But on the other hand, I, I think what's going to happen in places like New York, Chicago, and Portland is they're going to suffer an amazing loss of population because people who, in the abstract, will support the claims of the uh, rioters or the protesters or some mix of them are going to be the same people who are going to move out. I mean, there was a story in 
in the New York Times uh, about the boom in basically in housing outside of major cities now, which has erupted in the last uh, month or so. And it's a combination of two things. One, that COVID continues to drag on seemingly inexorably. And then secondly, the violence and the government's issues and the defund the police matters have left people, particularly people of means, genuinely uncertain. And you cannot run major cities if essentially what happens is you alienate uh, the individuals who contribute most to your civic life and to your tax base and hope to continue. And I think all of these cities are basically facing serious declines. Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York, in various proportions. New York and Seattle, I think, in New York and Chicago will solve it a little bit better, I think. And the reason is that they're larger cities uh, so that they can basically absorb the blows in particular neighborhoods. I'm not sure that's true everywhere else, particularly in places like Minneapolis and Portland. Well, I see as we tape this that there's news on CNN, uh, breaking news that President Trump is going to expand law enforcement operations um, in Chicago and Albuquerque. I don't know the details of it yet. I will say the federal government, of course, has a strong interest in protecting federal buildings, federal operations in the cities and states. The federal government doesn't exist at the pleasure of the mayors and governors of those states. And of course, the federal government should take all steps necessary to protect itself and its operations in those places. When I said earlier about uh, the, the 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 politicization of law enforcement, the politicization of prosecution. Your point earlier about the governors and the mayors goes right to that. When the American people see governors or mayors um, excusing obvious lawbreaking because they like the the peaceful protests that that are near that lawbreaking or that even the protests that they ultimately give rise to the lawbreaking, when they see that kind of politicization of law enforcement, that's every bit as bad as the anti-institutional politicization that they complain about on Trump's side. In the, the piece I wrote on City Journal on, on the prosecutorial side of this, I said that everybody agrees, there's universal agreement on the fact that prosecution should not be politicized. The only problem is everybody seems to think that they're in the right and the other side, that their enemies should be prosecuted for their heinous crimes. And we're seeing this on in the debates in, in Portland and elsewhere, where we have the, the governors and mayors that seem all just completely incapable of recognizing lawbreaking as such and honestly and 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 and. and and honestly prosecuting it as it deserves to be prosecuted. And everything that President Trump does to politicize these things, I've criticized up and down on this podcast for years now. I don't. I, I can repeat it, but I don't need to. I'm always pointing this out. The fact that governors and mayors make the exact same mistake while presenting themselves as, as protectors of, of rights or institutions is just laughable. And I think that the Portland situation is a, one of the saddest examples of it. Look, Richard, I hate is, to go out on, on such a dark note. Do you want to send us no, out on a more I mean, positive look, one? I, I think we really ought to sort of bring this to a close because on this case, there may be an unreasonable agreement between the two of us rather than reasonable disagreement. But yes, I mean, look, one of the things I, I think that's important is to remember that, you know, justice is supposed to be blind, but that doesn't mean it's supposed to be ignorant. It means that it's supposed to ignore irrelevant consideration. And basically the merits of your political cause uh, no matter how strong, no matter how right, do not excuse the use of violence. And so what has happened here is, is a kind of a very nasty philosophical undercurrent 
which tries to legitimate this. You see all the signs that silence is violent. And so now it turns out that people say like myself who don't come out there and join the inequities, well, we're engaged in violence. And so now it turns out the people who are using actual violence are engaged in sort of laudable self-defense. And that kind of an arrangement is absolutely corrosive to a free society because it means that everybody who believes in the soundness of their own position also believes in the soundness that they can break somebody else's window. And the mayors have not spoken out against that. What they always do is they speak as they did in Seattle. We are against violence, but they don't want to name the people who are violent and they don't want to arrest them. I saw in Chicago the uh, large numbers of protesters pelting a statue of Christopher Columbus in Grand Park, I believe it is. The police were standing there. They didn't arrest anybody. They didn't drive anybody away. What they tried to do is defend off brickbats uh, as they were being thrown at them. This is not the way a great city ought to operate. And I think our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, has failed in her fundamental duty in supplying public safety. Uh, so it is an unhappy note to end on, but I think it's probably time to end. Always a pleasure talking with you, Adam. Well, Richard, if we need more disagreement next time, we could talk about zoning laws. This will be fun. Oh, God. <laughs> well, we should talk. There are many things to talk about. Yes. I mean, and we just have to take anything about Joe Biden's programs, and then <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there'll be some disagreement. It may be that the only thing we'll disagree with is what's the strongest argument <laughs> to stay against them, right? But Left I right. mean, he's really sounding more and more like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Well, I'm looking forward to those future conversations. Thank you, as always. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please tune in for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.